All right, welcome everyone. This is another domain query episode. This is domain query, the misspent Russian Ute. And the inspiration for this one comes from a very interesting question from a relatively new reader who goes by the handle Baltbuck, B-A-L-T-B-U-C. And it is a very thoughtful question. And a thoughtful question requires and deserves a thoughtful response. So here's what Baltbuck asks. He says, Hi, Didact. I found you linked up on the normal American newsfeed. Uh, if you haven't checked out that site, by the way, go check it out. I'll, I should have a link uh, down in the description box. A uh, really interesting site. It's an aggregator. Is, um, <clears throat> it, it puts together a bunch of different feeds, and apparently mine is one of them. And he says, uh, you have a top-notch website and Telegram channel. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Very kind of you to say. This is a good article that discusses the problems that Russia faces against the fake and gay onslaught from America. He provides a link to an article uh, on the UNS website by Roloslavsky. And he asks, well, he basically says, Russia must be the beacon in the East. Uh, Boltbuck says, Russia must be the beacon in the East that holds form and resists. Countries like Hungary show promise, but frankly aren't all that important geopolitically. His question is, what do you think is the Russian future? So again, it's a very thoughtful question, and I did read through the article. Roloslavsky is a very interesting character. He does uh, have some very interesting things to say. The article itself is not that long. I mean, it's 2,600 words, but, you know... 10 minutes of your time. If you're a fast reader like me, it'll be even less. Uh, You'll be able to read straight through it and uh, you'll be able to get to the the core, the gist of the article. Essentially, what Roloslavsky says in the article, and I'm going to summarize the salient points, as it were. Again, I'll link to the article in the description box. Essentially, what he's saying is that if you look at generation stability, which is the latest crop of the Russian ute, the, the Russian youth, um, born pretty much after 1997, essentially. So really the 25 and younger cohort, what um, people in the U.S. would call Gen Z. Uh, that is kind of the age group we're talking about, uh, maximum 28. Okay, so essentially people who have only ever grown up under Putin, that this, they've only ever known life effectively under Putin himself, under the neo-Tsar. And Roloslavsky makes the point that these are people who have seen Russia on the ascendant. Uh, they've seen a stable, well-governed mostly, uh, well-managed, kind of got it together country that they haven't seen the hell times of communism, and they haven't seen the disintegration of Russian power, prestige, finance, and influence in the 1990s, which was an extraordinarily traumatic time for the entire country. They have only ever really known rising living standards, and critically, they have only ever known Western influence, Western pop culture, and imports from the West, and so on and so forth. But there are also a number of social problems that have come with that and which have caused issues for them. So 
Rollo makes the point that um, the fake and gay agenda has made inroads into Russia and it has begun corrupting the youth. Now, towards the end of the article, he also points out that the war in Ukraine has actually been a great net benefit for the Russians and particularly the Russian youth because now they're beginning to understand just how much the West hates, fears, and despises Russia and Russians and are moving away from it in a very big hurry. And he closes by saying, effectively, um, all these corrupting influences in Russia have brought it to a very grim and difficult point, but it's far from hopeless. It's not like in the Western world where there is no hope of saving America as it is today. We know America is going to collapse. There's no doubt about that. With Russia, there is still considerable hope that the Russian nation will carry on being Russian. And given the birth rate, given the decline in living standards, given the difficulty of life in Russia, the question is what will happen next? How will Russia evolve in the near future? Well, I partly answered that in episode 100 of the Didactic Mind main podcast, where I basically said Russia is going to get very rich and is going to be able to exploit her mineral wealth to a substantial degree in the coming years and decades. The conservative estimate of Russia's total mineral wealth, conservative estimate, dating back to Putin's graduate thesis in 1997, I think, or 1994, maybe even. It's a long, long time ago. Believe it or not, Vladimir Putin actually has a doctorate in economics. He doesn't talk about it because there's a lot of speculation that he didn't actually write his own thesis. And it would not be uncommon practice for high-ranking politicians in Russia to basically pay some professor or even graduate student to write a thesis in in their name and uh, thereby take the credit for it. But if you actually read his the opening sort of paragraphs of his thesis, it is remarkable how much he sounds he sounded back then like the man he sounds like today. There is an astonishing consistency across thirty years in terms of his understanding of Russia's great strengths, which come from her mineral wealth. The conservative estimate that he provided in 1994, 97, whatever it is, is 25 25 trillion, trillion dollars at that time, locked up in oil, gas, coal, lumber, precious metals, silver, gold, what have you, whatever you want to call, whatever metals you want to, uh, iron, um, whatever, you know. Put simply, Russia's natural natural resources are just immense. I mean, without comparison with any country in the world, it is that big in terms of its its resource power. So today, that estimate stands at close to $75 trillion. And I'm not joking about that. $75 trillion. How much of that is accessible is, is another story. But, of course, the point is that Russia has proven herself under the neo-Tsar to be 
a reliable and capable trading partner that is actually quite happy to be friends with everybody. I mean, it's quite happy to send its resources to anyone who's willing to pay. It has no problems working with the West, working with the EU, working with the US, working with Japan. Uh, equally, it has no problems working with China, India, the Saudis, the Africans, the Turks. Anyone who's willing to pay, it's willing to provide its resources. And you can see that even today. The stereotype of the Russians as being these kind of cold-hearted imperialists who just want to shut off the gas to Europe is ridiculous. It's a, it's a, it's a stereotype. It's a trope uh, spread by idiots in the West who really don't do their homework. They don't realize that if Russia wanted to switch off the taps, it would have done it a decade ago um, and would have left Europe, Europe to starve and freeze. It would have done it already in, in the course of the Banderistan War. It hasn't because Russia is actually interested in being a reliable and capable trading partner. And because Russia understands that China and India and other major powers are looking to Russia to provide them with resources, and if they shut off all of their resource shipments to the West, the collective West, they then prove themselves to be every bit as unreliable as the US is, every bit as unreliable as Britain or France or Germany or any of these other third, second, third, fourth-rate powers uh, running up to the 10th rate powers in the Baltics, uh, which, I mean, they can't do a damn thing. So Russia is poised for tremendous growth and opportunity. Whether it can take advantage of that opportunity to the benefit of the younger generation is a very interesting question. Now, to the points that Roloslavsky raises in his article, there is unquestionably, at present, a very corrosive influence. Or there was, I will, let me modify that, there was, up until the special military operation started 101 days ago, there was a very, very corrosive influence of Western fake gay globo-homopedo culture coming into Russia. And I could see it myself. Um, I have been extremely fortunate, blessed in my life to live in seven different countries. As many of my listeners and readers know, I am, I have lived in Russia. I've spent, uh, if you add up all the time, over a year in Russia, most of it, almost all of it in Moscow. And I do speak a bit of Russian, not well. My apologies to my, uh, Russian listeners, if I have any, um, they probably find my Russian pronunciation a bit appalling, but what can I say? Um, but the people who listen and re listen to and read my work understand that I possess an understanding of Russian culture that comes from actually living there and being enriched by it. I have been blessed to live in the West and in Russia, so I'm kind of uniquely poised. Uh, I'm one of the very, very few people who can speak to both worlds and speak to them effectively. So when I was in Russia in 2018 and especially 2019 and 20, I could definitely see the influence of kind of the corruption that Western culture brings with it. It was nowhere near as bad, nowhere close to as bad as it is in London or New York or especially, God help us, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, Manchester, um, any of the other globo homo pedo sort of infested cities of the West. 
It's nowhere near as bad as Berlin, nowhere near as bad as Paris. Um, that level of corruption is not there in Russia. You can still go to Russia and walk down the street in Moscow and just feel like you're surrounded by very normal people. The women all look trim. Well, most of them look trim, petite, well put together. They're well dressed. They make efforts with their looks. They try to look good. They like, they try to stay in good shape. They, they try to smell good. They're always interested in perfumes and flowers and, and gifts and girly stuff. And, and that's, that's the, that's what they do. But there are areas of the city where if you go, you'll find a lot of the very, very young crowd kind of hanging around wearing really sloppy looking clothes, um, with tattoos, rings, piercings, dyed hair. Uh, I remember once I was in, um, Norway Arbat in, uh, I think it was, when was this? This was, I think it was late 2018. Uh, it may have been, let's see, where was I? Late 2018, and then I was back there in 2019 briefly uh, after a month-long visit. So it must have been late 2018, where I remember going to, again, New Arbat and uh, walking around the square in that area. And uh, I saw two lesbians, you know, sitting and canoodling in public. It's just like, that's shocking. In, in Russia, that's absolutely shocking. You just don't see that anywhere else. Um, in, to, to a Russian mind, that's like, you shouldn't be doing this stuff in public. It's disgusting. And to their great credit, most of the Russian youth still think this way. But there is definitely a, an influence. Another Russian that I spoke to, um, said that, you know, she'd been talking to uh, a personal trainer in Moscow. And we were walking together in, um, I forget exactly where, but it was somewhere in the, near the city center. Really nice area, actually. Not far away from, um, not far away from, I think, uh, where's, the, where's the big ferry terminal that you can take the river cruises? I think it's Kievskaya, uh, Kievskaya, uh, district. And, um, we were talking about, uh, a number of things and we happened to come across this, this idea of, um, the feminization of Russian men. And she told me about this guy who was a gym trainer that he, uh, he worked at her local gym. And he was telling her about how over the last five years, so this was, this was, uh, this conversation happened probably 2020 ish. So a couple of years ago, um, he had seen and witnessed a significant trend towards weaker, more feminine men and stronger, more masculine women, where the men kind of were sort of dressed more effeminately. They spoke more effeminately. They were weak physically. They weren't really in good shape. They didn't take good care of themselves. They had, again, this bleached hair, tattoos, rings, piercings, whatever, all this crap. They were listening to crappy Western or Western influenced shitty music. And the women were becoming less and less nice to look at. They were really masculinizing themselves a lot. They were not uh, feminine at all. And he said that this was a major change that he'd never really seen it before. So this was, you know, between 2015 and 2020. So clearly there has been a lot of infestation uh, of 
Western culture into mainstream Russian culture, and that's a very, very bad thing. There are still certain bulwarks against it, and that's the good news. In 2020, the Russians held a national election, and they actually held a constitutional um, election as well at the same time. Now, obviously, the Neo-Tsars uh, United Russia Party won quite handily because you would expect as much. Um, but actually, it was a proper election. I mean, all the political parties in Russia campaigned. You could see it uh, out on the streets. You could actually see their, uh, what they were, you know, who their candidates were and what they were proposing and all the rest of it. It wasn't, it was a proper election. And one of the things that they voted on was a constitutional amendment stating that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, you wouldn't, you know, in the West, that would be like a, a, a radical, bizarre thing to vote on, which just tells you how far the West has fallen. But in Russia, here's the interesting thing. They have very clear laws preventing you from preaching global homopedo bullshit in schools. You can't do it. And this caused a huge furore in the West at the time. This was a few years ago. Uh, and Putin pointed out, you know, on, in a, in a TV interview, I think it was actually during his uh, annual Q&A session where he, he does this marathon session for a couple of hours and reporters from all over Russia are allowed to ask him questions up close and personal every year. And he's, he's very transparent about this. Um, so somebody asked him about these so-called uh, anti-gay laws. And he said, no, look, this is not anti-gay. All we're saying is you cannot preach this stuff in school. It is an individual's choice as to whether or not he or she wants to be this way. You cannot preach it in front of uh, them in school. It's a private choice and it should be left as a private choice. And he pointed out that, in fact, in Russia, there are no anti-sodomy laws on the books. And that's true, there aren't. He also subsequently took a very strong, very hard line against transgenderist ideology. If you look back, um, I think sometime last year, he basically called it a phantasmagoria. It's a phantasmagoria, as he said very, <laughs> very forcefully in his, in his speech. Uh, he said this, this phantasmagorical, uh, idea is, uh, he, he, he was extremely, extremely, um, uh, sort of, negative about the whole thing, and rightly so. The Russian government is committed to defending these ideals of the sanctity of marriage, the presence of only two genders. There are only two genders. Everything else is a mental illness. Let's be very clear about that. Um, I don't care if you are a hermaphrodite or intersex or whatever. These are very, 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 very rare conditions that are related to genetics. The reality is you have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. And if you have two X chromosomes, you're a woman. And if an X and Y chromosome, you're a man. End of. Okay. And the Russian government's position is exactly the same. That is the science, whether you like it or not. So they have taken a pretty strong stand against it. And the Russian youth, even the Russian youth that have only ever grown up exposed to Western styles of living, Western ways of life, um, still understand that this stuff is wrong. It's, it, it's bizarre. It's twisted. It's not a good thing to be around. So they get it, right? They're, they're not, 
Their, their brains have not been completely corrupted. It's nowhere near as bad as it is in the West. And there are substantial signs of hope. Um, I will say that when I look at Russian festivals and Russian cultural events, the people who are the most enthusiastic and the most uh, involved are always the young people. It's the old people, obviously, they turn out in force, but it's the young people who are really keen on, on being part of the whole event and having fun and being out there and, 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 and participating, whether it's Maslenitsa or um, some of the summer festivals or especially uh, Victory Day, Dien Pobiedi, uh, the uh, March of the Immortal Regiment. Um, that is, you know, Biesmirtni Polk. That is, that is uh, the Immortal Regiment itself has a very, very strong and powerful place in the hearts of Russian people. And you look in, uh, you, you look at the, the march in Moscow for this year on, on May 9th. It's a day filled with tremendous poignancy and significance for the Russian people. A million people took part in that parade in Moscow alone, and roughly another million took part in St. Petersburg. And a huge number of them were young people. If you look at um, the the speech that uh, Putin gave at Luzhniki on the anniversary of Crimea's accession into Russia, which I think was, uh, I probably got this wrong, but I think it was March 18th. I probably got it wrong, but you know, somebody check the date. Um, March 18th, 2014, so the eight-year anniversary. 70,000 people at Luzhniki and around the stadium. It was more than 70,000. And so many of them were young people waving flags and singing the Russian national anthem. Um, there are videos out there of, of young Russians kind of uh, waving the soldiers goodbye and, and um, really being very pro-Russian, pro-patriot, pro-fatherland pro or motherland. The Russians have a very confusing way of referring to Russia. They, they, they call it Atyechistva, fatherland, and also Rodina, motherland. I, look, I don't get it, but that's, that's how they do it. Um, <clears throat> now, when the war broke out, there were some very, very sharp fissures that occurred in Russian society. I could see it for myself, uh, even though I was outside Russia at the time, because I have Russian friends, obviously, and I stay in contact with them. You could see a very clear dividing line where the Russian youth that looked to the West as a source of income, inspiration, opportunity, and cultural uh, guidance were extraordinarily angry. And they were absolutely furious. They were out in the streets, you know, protesting. The, the protests were thousands and thousands of people strong. I was in, uh, incidentally, I was in Moscow um, in, again, when uh, protests took place with respect to pensions. So this was 2019, I think. And in 2019, the Russian people were absolutely furious at um, the Russian government's plans to increase the pension age. And you know who was the angriest? It was actually the Russian young people. And the reason they were so angry was because they were like, we won't live long enough to get back the money that we put into the system. We won't ever live long enough to be paid our pensions. That's why they were furious. There were protests like 50,000 strong in the middle of Moscow. I'm not joking about that. 50,000 people, most of them young, 
turned out to protest against these policies. And they did actually force Putin to back down a little bit, not much. But he did have to kind of water down the proposals a bit because he could see that the reaction was so angry and so negative from uh, so many of his people. His, his popularity actually took a big hit during that time. Uh, it dipped below, I think, 60% um, around about that time period, which is I mean, practically unheard of. So when the special military operation started, certainly there was a very large contingent of Russian youth that were very, very angry, absolutely furious. Um, they, they numbered in their tens and possibly hundreds of thousands, for sure. And a large number of them actually fled Russia because they were like, we're, if we don't leave now, we're never going to be able to leave. And foreign companies which maintained staffs in Russia also tried to get those same staffs out and give them like Schengen work visas or um, relocation visas, relocation packages to places like Turkey, uh, Portugal I know of. I mean, Deutsche Bank, for instance, um, said that they, they would relocate many of their best staff from Moscow, uh, from their tech center in Moscow out to Portugal and have them work from there remotely because they couldn't maintain that presence in Moscow otherwise. And same with St. Petersburg as well. Um, a number of other big banks also said that they would take their technical staff out of Moscow. The idea was to drain Russia of some of its best technical talent and move them out of the country. And a large segment of Russia's youth, I would say, uh, very rough guess, maybe 20 to 25 percent of Russia's urban youth, uh, was really against the war in the first two weeks. And then reality set in when every European country, every Western power slammed the doors on Russia, cancelled Russian culture, Russian art, Russian theater, books, uh, Russian athletes, movies, film stars, celebrities, personalities, authors, intellectuals, they were all barred from the entirety of the so-called civilized world. And that is when the extent and the, the shocking nature of Russophobia truly began to hit those very same young people. And we are now in the situation where those same young people have turned hard against the West. We are also in the situation where the Western sanctions are actually acting very much in Russia's favor. Because now, guess what? Pornhub, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, KFC, uh, what else? Pepsi, um, Facebook, Instagram, well, to some extent, Instagram, uh, Twitter, um, YouTube, Google, Apple, uh, what else? Netflix. They, if I mentioned Netflix before, I can't remember. I mean, just dozens and hundreds of companies. Ikea. Ikea in, in the West is pushing the global homo bullshit as hard as it can. In Russia, they're, they're basically been kicked out. And now, as it happens, those same companies are, some of those same companies are groveling to be let back in because like, oh crap, we've actually left a huge amount of our stuff in this country and we desperately need to reestablish our business. The oil companies, Shell, BP, um, and a, a few other of the, the, the Western oil majors abandoned Russia and they've taken multi-billion dollar hits to their balance sheets because of this, because of the write-downs. These are the same companies that are pushing global homopedo as hard as they can in the Western world. And in Russia, they've been totally excised. 
That break, that rupture with the West, has done two very, very good things for Russian youth. Number one, it has taught them the error of trusting the West. And number two, it has cleaned out a lot of this garbage from the minds and the daily consumption of the youth. All the Western news services are gone. They're outlawed, pretty much. Now, Russians can still get access to these services using VPNs, and that's not a problem. By the way, if you need a VPN, check out the offers that I have in the description box for Surfshark and Atlas VPN. And I recommend those even if you're not Russian. I mean, just get a VPN and make sure you use it because you never know when your freedom to information will be restricted. But what those Russians who are able to get out of Russia see now through those VPN connections is unadulterated hate, malice, suspicion, and pure evil. And they want nothing to do with it. So, we see that the Russian youth are beginning to cotton on. I mean, 25 and below. And we also see a huge explosion of patriotism within Russia itself. There are some very, very heartwarming videos that you see on Russian Telegram, on the Runet, and I share some of those on my channel as well, of memes and ideas and, um, and, and just videos propagated throughout Russia. These are coming from the Russian youth. I'll give you three examples. Number one, Babushka Z. Uh, most of you have probably seen that video in my channel of the old grandmother that uh, was approached by uh, Ukrainian forces and she came out waving her, her Soviet victory flag and she mistook them for Russians and she started thanking them, saying, thank you so much. Uh, I have waited for you for so long. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, the, you know, they... They, they took the flag from her, they put it on the ground, they stepped on it, and they gave her a bunch of supplies and said, you can only take these uh, if, if you're willing to denounce Russia. And so she, she, she said, no, uh, give me my flag back. That, my, that belonged to my parents. And she's an old woman. She's in her 80s and 90s even. And they refused. So she started giving them the supplies back. And then she said, no, I don't, I don't want these. That went completely viral all over Russia. And there are now memes like... Paintings appearing on the sides of buildings as far east as, Khabar as, as Khabarovsk, all the way in the far east, you know, in, in Primorsk, in Yekaterinburg, um, of Babushka Z with her flag. And if you look at the shadow, you'll see something very interesting. The shadow is of, of this old grandmother. It's not actually the grandmother's shadow in this painting. It is uh, the statue outside of Volgograd, Rodina Mat Zavyot, on Mamayev Kurgan, in that national park. You have to go see that statue or pictures of it to understand how powerful that image is. The Motherland Calls is a statue that really speaks to the entire legend of the Great Patriotic War, of the defense of Stalingrad, of the thousands, the tens of thousands, the millions of lives that the Russians lost. That meme was created by the Russian youth. Another example, there's um, a little boy named uh, Lyosha um, uh, who, who runs out, you know, he's somewhere, I forget exactly where, somewhere in the Russian mainland, I think. Um, I think. And he runs out every time he sees the tanks going past. He's dressed up in his little uniform and, and, and you know, he looks like a, 
uh, a cute little soldier and he's running out and he stands and he, he, he salutes the tanks as they go past. And somebody filmed this, I think it was probably his, his mother and uploaded it to uh, Vkontakte or Odnoklasniki or, you know, Rutube or whatever, the Russian equivalents basically of Facebook and YouTube. Again, went completely viral. And that was a beautiful defining moment. And now this little boy's face is all over the country. Again, Russian youth are spreading this meme of a patriotic little boy. And it got so big that the Russians, that the actual Russian army sent um, some officers with a package. They, there's a the beautiful video of them walking up to Lyosha and he salutes them and they salute him back. And there's this, uh, there's this like, sergeant or lieutenant, I forget exactly. I, I can't read Russian ranks, obviously. I, I can't read military ranks in general, so you have to forgive me for this. But an officer comes up and salutes him and gives him a little package. And, you know, the, the kid's like eight years old. And he gets this package and it contains a little uniform. It contains a little tanker's uniform. And they promise him that, that he'll be able to go up in a Russian tank and see what it's like. And he wants to be a tanker someday. He wants to join the Russian tank corps. Um, it's, it's just a, a wonderful little moment. And that video, again, goes viral all over Russia. And the people instrumental in spreading it are, again, the Russian youth. They're the ones with whom this resonates the most thoroughly. You can see that recruiting at, for the Russian military, volunteer recruiting for the Russian military is through the roof right now. Putin's approval rating is at like 91% in the country. And much of that gain comes from the youth. They see and understand that he is on their side and they're pushing hard. They're, they're in some ways pushing the hardest for the break from the West. Because it's like, you know, when with, with spurned lovers, if you will, um, they had this love affair with the West and the West basically spat in their faces and, and, and told them to get lost. And they're absolutely furious. I mean, they're spitting mad and they want some payback. And that's why they stand so strongly behind Putin, because number one, he's doing the right things. Number two, he's achieving victory. Number three, he's very confident, very articulate. And number four, he's actually helping them out, economically speaking. And the, the third moment that I want to talk about is what was probably a staged video. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that this was a spontaneous sort of flash mob type thing. But basically, there was a, there's a video Again, floating out on the RuTube somewhere. I don't know where, how it started or where it started. But if you look at my Telegram channel, you'll find it. And uh, Donbass Yevushka and Intel Slava Z and a bunch of other channels shared it as well. Where there's a group of sailors waiting at a train station, waiting to take a train to the front lines. And randomly, seemingly randomly, some girls, young girls, can't be more than... 18 to 22, start singing a very, very famous Russian song. It's called Katyusha. Katyusha is a Russian war song dating back all the way to the Great Patriotic War. I mean, every Russian knows it, pretty much. Every Russian has sung it. It's like, there's the national anthem and then there's Katyusha. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's the level of, of familiarity that people have with it. And they start singing it and all the older people around them join in and start singing it. And soon, soon everyone around them is singing this song, including the sailors. 
It's a beautiful, wonderful, heartwarming moment. And it tells you something about the Russian character. That these are the people who fight the hardest for what they believe in. So we see the youth turning decisively away from the West now in Russia. We see the forcible break with the West resulting in a lot of this poison being essentially firewalled off from Russia itself. There's a joke going around in Russia right now, which my Russian contacts have shared with me. I think it's absolutely hysterical that thanks to getting rid of all this junk food and porn and stupid news nonsense from CNN and, you know, the Clown News Network, the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation, uh, Netflix with all of its woke social justice garbage, iPhones, which are just poisonous for, for people's minds, getting rid of all of that, you're going to create now the most well-educated, well-read, well-informed, healthiest, fittest, uh, most sensible in terms of what is valuable to them, people anywhere on earth. I mean, the West could not have screwed up more colossally, more profoundly, with respect to its agenda of corrupting the world, if they tried. And, you know, it completely backfired on them. I want to close out by addressing this question of what happens to Russia, you know, what is, what is the Russian future, which is what started all of this. Again, as I pointed out, the Russian youth have definitely changed. Everything about Russia depends really in my analysis on two things. Number one, whether they can rescue their birth rate. And number two, whether they can really harness the might of their industry. The Russian economy is much, much bigger than most people think it is. The Russian industrial engine is enormous. It is incredibly powerful. And it's very important for people to understand that. There are trillions upon trillions of dollars worth of wealth locked up underneath Russia's ground. And it's all just waiting to be distributed. The first question about birth rates is crucial. Russia's birth rate right now is 1.8. It was, that's, that's actually substantial improvement from where it was to like 1.5. Um, and maybe even lower than that, not too long ago. Now, there's some contention about whether that is truly Russia's birth rate. Uh, when I say birth rate, I mean total fertility rate. So to be clear, Russia's total fertility rate right now is about 1.8 per woman. That is a substantial improvement, but it's not enough. Russia needs a TFR of three or four in order to expand. Ultimately, nations thrive depending on whether or not they're producing children. End of. It is, there's no debate on this subject. Russia doesn't produce enough children right now, and it especially doesn't produce enough white Christian children. The Muslim republics within Russia are, of course, producing children. Chechnya, Dagestan, etc., etc. That is potentially a problem. You know, uh, Muslims number about 14% of Russia's population right now. That's not a good sign. Uh, Russia is an Orthodox Christian country. It is the Orthodox Christian country in the world, and it needs to defend Orthodox Christianity based on that. Now, will this change? Well, it will, but it needs to change in tandem with the economic environment. People will not have more children until the economy is there to support it. And the economy won't be there supported until there are more people. So, you know, it's kind of a chicken or egg question. 
But I see some very hopeful signs. I see that Russia's coffers are full. They have so much damn money, they don't know what to do with it. They're like, what do we spend it on? Um, they're a very fiscally conservative government, by the way. So Putin's government is not just going to throw money at people because it knows that's a great way to cause inflation. Uh, Brandon over in the United States might want to take note. Of course, I mean, his, his, his brains are full of porridge. He's not going to figure it out, but you know, it is what it is. Um, the other issue of economic growth. Well, there's no question that as the, the world is, is, is fissuring sharply into uh, different camps. You have the collective West, which in, in, insists on committing collective suicide. And then you have kind of everybody else who's like, well, we don't want to be part of this, this global homopedo agenda. We don't want to be involved in this. We want our own interests. We want our own people to thrive. And Russia is assiduously reaching out, trying to link up with these blocks, these, these groups of people around the world to build relationships and build networks. Um, the real question is who succeeds Putin? That's the key to all of this. Putin is in his sixties. It's not going to take, it's not going to be more than another 10, 15 years before he's too, really too old to rule effectively. What happens after him? And this is where Russia has a huge potential problem on its hands. Russia's history, Russia historically has a very bad track record of picking successors to powerful monarchs. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Stalin, um, you know, you go down the list. I mean, that, those are just the three that pop up to my, to my mind right now. But if you go down the list of Russian monarchs who are actually really good and really effective, you'll find that every single one of them always had the problem of picking a good successor. Putin has the same issue. Now, it's not maybe as bad as, let's say, Peter the Great, but because you have people like Patrushev, Medvedev, uh, Glazyev, and a few others, but nobody has quite that cachet of personality and force of will that Putin does. Medvedev, a lot of people think he's a transatlantic, he's, a, he's an Atlanticist, a dove. He's not. He never was. And this is a mistake that I've made as well. A lot of other people have made it. Even Andrei Martyanov, uh, whom I respect immensely, Grandpa Grumpus, as I call him, he thought that Medvedev was uh, a dove. No, he's not. He's, he's, he's always been a hawk. And if you go back to 2008, you'll see this. In the middle of the Georgian crisis, he was the one who fired some high-ranking general or official or something um, because he was very unhappy about the conduct of military operations. And he has since come out as an extremely hard-line figure, basically saying Russia needs to break with the West. And we have had enough of this nonsense from the Western world. We are going to chart our own course. So I don't see the succession issue as being quite so bad as, as it was in the past, but it's still a major area of concern. What happens after that? Well, with respect to the Russian youth, the Russian youth understand ultimately that they are part of Russia. I want to close with one thought about them. There's a beautiful video that I saw uh, on my Telegram channel, which I shared around. It con compares and contrasts um, what Russian kids are taught with what Ukrainian kids are taught. It shows a video of a Buryat, a little Buryat girl. The, the Buryats are uh, Buddhists um, who live in, you know, way out in Siberia somewhere. I mean, like really far out in Siberia. Uh, the Buryats and the Tuvans are the two big sort of ethnic groups of, of, of Buddhists. And they're like 190 different ethnic groups in Russia. Uh, 
this little girl is asked, you know, what are you? And she says, Ya Ruskaya, uh, I'm Russian. And her mother says, no, you're, Nyet, Nyet, Ya Ruskaya, Ya Ruskaya. And she's constantly saying, and she gets quite annoyed. She gets very angry with her mother for saying, you know, you're a Buryat. No, I'm not, I'm a Russian. And that's what she says over and over again. I am a Russian. I believe I, I, I am, I believe in Russia. This is my home. This is my country. That's exactly how Russians feel about it. Это наша страна, наша земля, наш народ. Мы никому не отдадим нашу страну. Мы никому не отдадим наш народ. Абсолютно нет. That's exactly how they think about it. That's exactly how they would say it. You know, Russians have this deep love of the land, regardless of generation, regardless of age. They love their country. And that is the key differentiator between them and youth in any other country, in the West, at least, in the collective West. The collective West has no understanding anymore of what it means to have a country, to have a nation. The Russians understand the five core principles of nation. They understand that a nation means shared blood, you know, shared race, shared culture, meaning traditions, history, um, you know, uh, past, if you will, shared faith, shared language, and shared land. They understand what Russia is and what it means to them. So I think the future for Russia is bright. I think the Russians have tremendous power that they are is just waiting to be unleashed. And I think that once they they complete the special military operation in uh, 404 land in Banderistan, they will have another well anywhere between four and ten million new Russians to add to the roles. And that's going to bring an element of dynamism and energy to their country that they need because. The eastern and southern bits of Ukraine are incredibly productive, incredibly dynamic, lots of industry, lots of great mines, lots of uh, tremendous technical talent, lots of industrial experience, lots of, of, of farming capability. The Russians have huge amounts of farmland, I mean enormous amounts of farmland, that is just nobody's using it because it's, it's so far out there. I mean, Russia's so big. So, you know, they have the potential to become the true um, export-oriented engine of the world. And I think the Russians have a lot of good things to look forward to. But the question is, will they get their birth rate up? I think over the coming years, we're going to see that happen. They're going to expand their country. They're going to expand their people. And I, I have great faith in the Russian people. I have great faith in the Russian youth. I think Barring a few, you know, let's say 10% or even 15% of them being morons who are very pro-Western, I think they're going to get a lot of the stupid beaten out of them over the coming years. And I think a lot of the older generation, certain people my kind of age, uh, have already turned against the West. I mean, I know of Russians who are very anti-Putin, very anti-Putin, who are like my age and maybe a little younger. And they're, they're saying, yeah, he's okay. Now, you know, a few years ago, they were like, this guy's a crook, he's a thief, he's... He's this, he's that. Now they realize what he was planning all along. Now they see it and they're like, okay, he's actually on our side. And he hates the oligarchs as much as we do. 
So I think the future is very bright and I think we should keep an eye on Russia over the coming years. I think we will see a lot of good stuff come from Russia um, over the next 10 to 15 years. That's my answer. It's quite a long one, I know, and a very, very detailed one. And I apologize if it's too long, but uh, I think um, this needed a thoughtful and in-depth explanation. So Boltbach, I hope that answers your question. I think Russia has a very, very bright future. I think the Russian youth um, are moving decisively away from the corruption of the West. I don't think they're going to come back because the West doesn't want them back. I mean, the West will come begging for them, for Russia to come back. It's not going to, it's going to get, you know, a, a, a mailed fist in the teeth at this point. Um, so I think, you know, Russia is, is looking good. And I think a lot of the, most of the global homo pedo nonsense is going to be given the boot and it will not come back. Um, the global homo pedo agenda has failed. And Russia is going to show the way. Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church has a lot of problems. I don't agree with it on a lot of things. I don't agree with it on most things. But it is at least a bulwark of faith and tradition and orthodoxy against the evil of the left and against the evil of progressivism within the church. So a lot of good things to look forward to. I think we should all be optimistic about Russia's future. And I think... Um, Putin is going to go down in history as Russia's greatest ever ruler. That's, that's my view. That's it for me. This has been Didactic Mind uh, Domain Query, actually, uh, Wither Mother Russia. And I am Didact, signing off.